Are you that friend who's always afraid of social situation? Are you that friend who's living paycheck to paycheck? Are you that friend who thinks twice before purchasing a bubble tea? Oh my god, that sounds like all three of us! Not anymore, you are listening to Broke No More, where we talk in and out about business and startups. Hello, welcome back to Radio Pulse, the sound of NUS. We are back on our show, Broke No More. So anyway, I'm Javier. And this is Aurudotu and Shah Rosha. Yes, unfortunately, Lakshmi is not here with us today because of family emergency, but we will continue on without her. So who are our guests for today? So you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, uh, hi everyone. My name is Weijun uh, and I'm one of the co-founders in Lalia. And I'm Francis. I'm also another co-founder of Lalia. So my first question to you is, so what does Lalia do? Yeah, so uh, Lalia is an interest-based English learning platform targeted at non-native English speakers. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to break the mold of a textbook, right, and allow students to decide what they want to learn with, um, and then we help them with how they're going to learn with those materials. Ooh, that's so interesting. So I see that you have been targeting the Japanese audience. So my first question is to why Japanese audience? Uh, I think working in a startup, you need to uh, manage your resources. So our co-founder is actually Japanese. One of We, we met him uh, when he was a student. He was an EMBA student. And so uh, as an EMBA student means, you know, you've been in the industry for about eight to 10 years. Uh, and so... Uh, that would mean that he would have uh, resources, you know, in the industry, whether or not it's in the education industry or not, but he would have resources in, in order to help us in Japan. Uh, and I think that's important for us, right? You always work with the resources that you have, yeah. So one question is like, talking about this startup, before you uh, before you had this startup, I understand that Weijin, you do have a, a startup related to flowers. Am I right? Yes. So... Why did you decide to change from flowers to edutech? Ah, uh, good question. Yeah, so for flowers, it was actually a non-tech startup. I mean, I, I'm not the technical founder in this com- current company as well. Um, and so I had to work with the, the talents that I have. Like, and at that point of time, uh, I actually created that flower startup with my cousin who, who did like a freelance flower bouquet making and I work with this other designer who is from industrial design and so we wanted to really um, uh, do something different Uh, we wanted to solve a problem whereby uh, for couples when they buy bouquets you know if you just take it off the shelf there is no intention right you're just it's just transactional you just buy the bouquet give it to your partner so where's the love right and so um you sound so experienced (laughs) yeah yeah that's that's what happened when i bought my bouquets and so we wanted to allow the buyer to inject some form of intention into the buying process which is why we created the flower bouquet startup whereby uh, we created modularized uh, flower bouquets where the, the guy or the girl could pick individual uh, modules to form a bouquet, thereby injecting some form of intention. Yeah. Wow, that's something so romantic to hear. Yeah. Yeah. So why the foray into uh, edutech? Yeah, Francis, would you like to answer that? Oh, okay. Yeah. So, I I think that um, 
Edutech wasn't like the the first choice, or it wasn't like something that we had like a burning passion for at right, right from the start, right? Um, we went through the incubation program um, in NUS, um, GRIP, the Graduate Research Innovation Program, and in that program, um, the task is to take some technology in NUS, from NUS and uh, find uh, a market use case and to bring this technology to commercialization, right? Uh, and the technology that we had was really applicable to help these students um, learn English. Um, um, yeah, so that was the reason why we chose um, EduTech. And along the way, we also met our uh, third co-founder, uh, Tachi-san, and he has been uh, in this space for quite a while as well. Um, Weiji mentioned earlier that he has been working for many, many years, right? Uh, but on the side, he also runs his own uh, English learning platform. And together, we decided to create this company to basically bring these AI technologies um, to help the students uh, learn better. Yeah. So can you share your experience with Enneascript? Like, how did you got to know about Enneascript and what was your learning journey throughout that Enneascript period? I think a lot of people, you get a lot of emails from Enneascript about their pro upcoming programs. So if you can share about your experience, I guess people who allowed to join Enneascript uh, will be get a lot of benefit through it. Okay, so maybe I can start with like, how, how did we get into NUS Grip? Or rather, how many minutes do we have, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's quite a long, long story. But, <laughs> I can give a summary. But, um, what was special for us was that we joined another program prior to Grip, called Grip Make. So, so um, maybe one thing that's special about our team is that um, we, we are a team that's not made up of um, the typical graduate um, students that you'll find in the Grip program um, who come up from the laboratories. Right, so at a point in time, we had just graduated from our undergraduate courses, um, and we joined this feeder program called Grip Make, uh, which was a, a new initiative, um, but only once off, um, and the program was was um, designed for for undergraduates like ourselves, fresh grads like ourselves, to um, find um, a market use case for the technologies that we could pick and choose from NUS. So we didn't do the research, but we can. Uh, inherit the technologies from NUS. And that was how we entered the GRIP program through this feeder program. Um, and moving on, the program itself for GRIP, uh, it consists of, uh, it's a 12-month long, 12 month long um, uh, program with a three-month um, hothouse period where they grill you and drill you all of the content and the lessons that you need to, to know uh, before embarking on this uh, entrepreneurship journey. Um, uh, they take the perspective that many of the participants in the program are um, people come from research backgrounds who might not have much uh, business uh, experience, right? And maybe they're not very sure of how to productize the technology. Yeah, so it was very useful for, for us to go through the program uh, to learn, right? Uh, and fail, right? I think it was very good in that we could make mistakes and um, we would, we did get criticized a lot, but that was whole purpose was part of the process, right? Because you learn from your your mistakes, yep. and also you learn from uh, the critique, la. And I think that uh, after surviving the grueling um, couple of months, uh, we came out stronger, la. I like to believe. I think one thing that people would like to ask is that, considering that you are taking like IP, is it IP from the uh, NUS? Uh, do they have a stake when it comes to like your company when you start it? Yeah, so I think uh, those are two different things. Uh, so there is this, there is a background and a foreground IP. So 
so when NUS provides you with the research, uh, they, you, you technically have a background IP that's from NUS, right? And what you do is that you evolve or rather transform this IP into a more advanced version or a more uh, mature version where it can be commercialized. Because, you know, things that uh, professors do in the lab may not be transferable to the market. And so our job is to really take these technologies, grow it, and then make it uh, available for commercial use. And this is the foreground IP that we built right on top of it. So we don't pay, I mean, uh, NUS doesn't have a, have a stake in our company because of the IP. What happens is that NUS will file the IP on our behalf and then we will pay NUS uh, a license fee, an exclusive license fee. So we are, they are filing it for us and we are licensing it back to our company, right? Uh, with regards to having a stake in our company, that is separate because uh, for the GRIP program, there is an investment up to $100,000. And so if you pass the investment panel and you raise some money externally, what happens is that NUS will give you an investment in a form of a safe note, right? And this investment is a is a convertible, uh, uh, com convertible bond? like like um, I don't know how to explain. Is this another bond? It, it's like a it's like a bond bond, but they call it a, a a note, right? Where it's a hybrid instrument, a hybrid debt and equity instrument, where it can be converted at the next round of fundraising. Yeah, so debt will transform into equity in the future. So they, that's how they get a stake, and not because of IP. Yeah. Okay. I think that's a very interesting uh, thing like for mm. the audience to find out. So mm. one question to you specifically is what is the difference between like having a flower business and an edutech business? Like what is the biggest difference? What is the biggest difference? Uh, well, I think uh, in terms of technical know-how, if I were to, to compare it to picking up the skill of like flower, uh, like flower making, right? Uh, I think the barriers to entry is is lower compared to like if I were to do a tech business, um, and because uh, the flower business was kind of a student project, you know, we we never really had to pursue profits so aggressively, uh, pursue growth very aggressively, and furthermore, we don't have shareholders then, and so we're not answerable to anyone. Like we're just having fun, right? Uh, but now, you know, we have NUS as our investor, we have Enterprise Singapore as our investor. You know, these are people uh, that, uh, or, or they don't chase us on a regular basis. Uh, we, we are still answerable to them. Uh, and, and so, uh, it's, a, it's, it's definitely more, more, more serious for us, uh, the way we approach this. Uh, but in terms of difference, I don't think creating one star or another, uh, you should think about growth any different because if you are, if you want to build a company, you should build to grow it, lah. Right? If you are serious about it. So, uh, is there any particular startup or an established firm that inspired you for this edutech thing to take up while you are taking up this edutech thing, or a startup? If you are thinking about a startup. Yeah. So to to answer that question, um, if you are inspired by another startup you will have tendencies to copy that startup, right? And I don't think that's the best way to go about uh, solving a problem, right? For us, um, it's more like an exploration. You need to find out what's wrong with the market and then you develop solutions to solve that specific problems. So you, you don't you don't end up following right, another startup. And so this, this is also one of the reasons why startups exist. Because, you know, if you start chasing like 
the shadows of like corporates, right? You'll never reach them. But if you approach in in a in in a manner where where in in their blind spot, then you have an opportunity to grow faster than all these corporates. Yeah. Okay. So uh, one other thing that you know kinds of bloom up and uh, blooming up at my mind is uh, when you are starting up this thing. Okay, when you are going to a grip program or when you are starting up uh, setting up this startup. Um, what's that one failure that you overcome that you like to share with the listeners? Like we had this sort of failure that we overcome. So if you are kind of entering this edutech area, be mindful of this. I think it's not just like you think, but in general, like what's one failure in business that you face? We like to talk about it. kind of edutech first, then you can generalize it as well. No, I I think one one of the the failures uh, early on was um. Um, thinking too much about the technology, so I I, I think that um, because we came up from the grip program, and um, that made us um, think of the how how do I put it, think of the technology a little too much, um, because you, you are taking the technology and always thinking like okay, um, how can I use this? How can I solve the world? I mean, not solve the world, save the world with this technology, right? Um, and that approach is not um, user centric. And when you when you try to force fit um, the technology into the problem statement, uh, you kind of lose um, f- focus, right? Uh, but you're through our interviews with the um, Japanese students, um, when we realized that okay, maybe the technology might not be a um, perfect fit, right? We definitely need to um, augment the technology more um, through our research and perhaps. Uh, um, Wrapping it around with a nice user interface, right? And make it more usable. Um, as part of our platform, we also design activities to better utilize our technologies. Uh, and I think that not realizing that earlier um, could have saved us more time. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Education market. I, I wouldn't say it's a failure, but I think it's more the nature of the education market. Uh, for for us, you know, we, we came out of university and we, we, not like we studied a degree in education, right? And so when we first went into the education market, we don't know uh, all the nuances of it. And so, uh, for example, right, sales cycle. What's the sales cycle of a, a public university? It's going to be one year. And you need to know when that, that one year starts and that one year ends. The moment, let's say the sales cycle starts in February, you approach them in March, you know, you're not going to get any revenue from them because they're not going to budget anything for you. And so, um, yeah, it's it's important to know all these types of nuances uh, before you get into any industry. Uh, for us, you know, we had to learn it the hard way. <laughs> you know, we get in and it's like, oh my God, <laughs> we're going to have to um, uh, provide you free service for the next uh, maybe 11 months before you reach your next sales cycle. And these are things that we must do, right? Otherwise, we ruin the relationship uh, the moment we approach them. Yeah. So, yeah. so I saw one of your interviews with NUS Grip. I think when you're pitching your idea about this edutech, um, one of the things you said that well, people kind of think different. You, one of the examples you gave was like word book or something. Uh, you, the people think we are in Japanese different, but the way the words they use, the word book is, even though it's technically not an error, mm-hmm. but what they actually mean is different, okay? So, uh, in that, I think this is one of the basis of your startup as well, right? So, um, like, how did you try to, uh, you know you know the plan, like I want to keep it culture-oriented learning, but how did you make it into reality? Mm. You want to talk about the tech? 
Okay. Yeah. So, uh, what what you mentioned uh, um, earlier um, with regards to the translation in the head, right? Um, so our technology um, allows the students to um, correct their sentences um, with some cultural um, context, right? So um, take for example, um, students in Japan they might when they write English sentences they might do direct translation from Japanese to English and, and thereby introduce some um, errors from their mother tongue right uh, and that's precisely what our technology is doing it's able to pick out these cultural nuances to, to give a better correction right? but this is just a technology um, give it to any Japanese student they're not going to buy it immediately right uh, which is why we needed to um, build the rest of our platform right, to serve um, um, content and also activities to frame um, some smaller task for the for the students to do, which are supported by our technologies, um, which will give them the feedback for them to to um, learn and improve. Okay, so right now your startup is in like a pilot scale, or is it actually kind of scaled up more than a pilot scale one? Yeah, it's launched already in in university, high schools, junior high schools in Japan. Yeah. So is it like, do we have other other way opportunity? Like, I'm not fluent in Japanese, so is there any possibility where I can learn Japanese through your system? Like, because what I know is English, but can I use that as a basis? And is this after having any plans for international students to learn Japanese or even Indian nationalities? Like, let's say a Chinese person to learn English and stuff. Yeah. Uh, so, so for different nationalities, yes. Uh, we plan to target uh, Thailand next. Uh, but... With regards to other languages, uh, no, we we tend to own we tend to focus only on English. This is because, uh, you know, there's so many language apps out there, and and they're just trying to acquire market share as fast as possible, which is why they 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 support multiple languages, right? But for us, you know, we want to create a system whereby you know we focus on one thing. We create our AI solutions for one specific purpose, right? And to create an AI system that supports English is, like. We know we're gonna spend so much money on research, and then if you want to do Chinese, you're gonna spend a lot of money again, and so, um, yeah, I think I think our bet is that by being focused, you know, it it will pay off in the long run by being the best. Yeah. Thailand sounds like a very interesting market to tackle, but uh, why specifically you want to aim for the Thailand market next? Yeah, so like I said, it's always about resources, right? It's always about who you know there, uh, who can get you in the market as fast as possible, so. So we managed to find a partner who is willing to put us into the market uh, after some adaptations of the platform. And so that's what we are working to do. Like we're trying to, 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 to make those adaptations to fit the Thailand market and then uh, you know, dedicate some resources to, to, to pilot the platform. Okay, um, a few minutes back we were talking about stakeholders and stuff. So um, I'm not sure whether this answer was given in the before interview, but... Um, how do you manage your stakeholders, internal, external, and everyone? How do you manage your, your stakeholders? stakeholders. Uh, I mean, I, I don't think we are at the stage whereby our stakeholders are, uh, uh, are bugging us every other day. Because right now, we are past, like, I would say past seed, right? And so... Um, our stakeholders are mainly institutional investors, which is like NUS and Enterprise Singapore, angel investors, right? And so these are, these are they're, they're usually aware of the risk, right? Because they're coming in very, very early, uh, pre-revenue. And so um, 
they wouldn't uh, try to to get updates every single uh, a day, right? And so uh, for me, managing stakeholders is very, very easy. I just create a WhatsApp group and I tell them, look, uh, this is the latest uh, uh, development of our system, latest development of our, our customers, right? And so uh, if you've got anything to say, just let me know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So how beneficial it is to have an experienced uh, stakeholder, external stakeholders? Like and you see, when you said that anyone saw the person who are very much aware about the market and how, what are the risks associated in, in that, okay? So for many people, getting stakeholders like that is kind of, I would say it's lucky. Or I don't know how it, in reality it is. Uh, it, I would say it is called as lucky, okay? But how do you, how beneficial it's from the person who is getting benefited like from an experienced stakeholder, from your point of view, how it is? How do you feel? Um... I mean, I know that we are receiving investments from an educational institution. And as a education startup, it sounds like it's a line. But you have to know that the people who invest in us from uh, NUS are not the people <laughs> who actually educate students, right? And so you don't, you don't get that direct benefit. Right? Um, but if you think about NUS, you know, they got large networks. And so, for example, if we wanted to work on our pedagogy, like who can we approach? Okay, can we ask someone from the investment side to approach uh, Center of English Language Communication in the US? That's one way to approach it. For Enterprise Singapore, can we know like who are the regional players? Right. These, these are some things that we can ask as a result of them investing money in us. You know, they are committed in one way or another, but not to the degree that you might assume. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What is the most nerve-wracking part that like from start to now? Like, when is the most nerve-wracking part? Is it like when you're trying to like pitch to investors and not knowing whether you get it or is, was it other periods? I, I, I think uh, for us, right, we, we got into startups right out of school. So at every stage, it felt nerve-wracking, right? Uh, when, we, when we had to find our co-founders, right? When I didn't even know Francis, when I didn't even know Daichi, who's our Japanese co-founder, that part is nerve-wracking because, you know, you're, you're getting... You're getting like you're getting married with like this group of people, you know, and you're gonna spend so much time with them. You don't know how they work. You don't know what their personality is like, and so uh, that's nerve wracking. And then when when you go into like hot house and you need to deliver a letter of intent, right, uh, which are which are non enforceable documents that they're interested in your product, uh, you know, how do you deliver that? What do you need to do when you find clients? You know, like these kind of things. Then you need to find after doing that. At the same time, you need to uh, find uh, user interviews, right? Like how do you find like 100 people to test your product, right? At every stage, there is these challenges uh, and all of them are nerve-wracking for the first time, right? <laughs> right but, but after after going through it um, uh, for the second time and third time, you know, it just, it, it's not, it's not as bad as you might think. Yeah. Wow. I guess in this first part, we talk a lot about uh, how a slow and, slow and steady approach and what what is the impact if you have a good research i mean basic background literature i mean any sort of basic research how you implement it and also at the end we talk about networking opportunities how networking can help us through this okay so stay tuned for part two and we'll be back for while we'll be talking about students and basically how students can enter this area even in a deeper analysis so stay tuned for this
So welcome back listeners and yeah now we are on part 2 of Broke No More. And yes. over to Xavier for this first question in part 2. So the very first question is everybody wants to know the million dollar question. What are your working hours like? What are our working hours like? Um so we never really like think about working hours until we had to hire our first interns, right? Because then you need to like You know, imagine if you tell your intern be like, uh, 24-7. Uh, no, no one's going to take the job, right? So, so like, when, when we hired them, we, we said that, okay, uh, 9 or 6, come in 9 or 6. At the point in time, we were also doing remote working, but it was during that time slot. But I think for for us founders, um, you're right that the expectation seems to be like, mm, to work 24-7, la, right? But I think that, um, for me personally, I'm not sure about Weijin. Uh, <laughs> we, we, we work, um, Almost all our free time, lah. Mm. Uh, I think, yeah. Um, I think that one thing that might be different from like a corporate job is that our hours are a bit more flexible. Yeah, for for founders. I mean, flexible in the bad in the, in the bad sense, lah. That we work on the, <laughs> on, the <laughs> on the weekends. Yeah, mm. too. Um, I mean, when the job always says like you have flexible hours, <laughs> I don't think it's ever a good thing. <laughs> So, so I don't think it's that bad, lah. Um, the short answer is nine to six. The long answer is you don't know. The long answer is there is no working hours, lah, right? Because like mm. you know, um, it's whenever. Because I mean, the startup only grows when you put hours into the into the startup, right? Um, coming from a, a technical point of view, the the code base is only going to grow if someone is coding, <laughs> right? So if I don't code, then the the platform is not going to grow. Yeah, so that's like the. Um, pragmatic point of view, yeah. I I I think, um, I think as you as you grow your startup, you know you. And I mean, not not from the CTO's perspective, but like from from my perspective, um, you will realize that there are many gaps that you don't know, right? Because uh, nobody knows everything. But like when you go into it, you think that okay, uh, my biggest concern is fundraising, and so you start learning like okay. Why combinator? How do they fundraise? How do they build up pitch decks? How do they deliver uh, succinctly? Um, these are things that you care about in the beginning. Then suddenly, when you have money already, you realize, oh no, I need to start hiring. Then how do I how do I do HR? And then, you, then you have no clue how to do it. Then you need to file your 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 annual reports. How how do you do that? Like suddenly, like there's so many other things that you realize that you needed to do, but you didn't need to do prior to incorporation. That you need to go and learn, lah. And when can you learn it? During nine to six? Not possible, right? Because you Doing your actual work, and so you learn it after work, and that's why it consumes so much time. You know, there's so many things you need to learn. So, will you agree that like in the earlier stage of a startup is where it's the most time consuming because there's so much for you to pick up? Oh, so much uh, for you to learn as well. Yeah. I, I, I think it never ends, lah. Right, it never ends until the point where you raise enough money that you can get someone else to fulfill that role. Yeah, then you can just focus on what you need to do at that point of time. So as a startup owner and now you guys are working on a startup, how do you manage the different roles? That I guess all the roles we are not professional understanding about the other roles, right? We have we are coming from we are from a different domain and we might work on the other domains. So how do you kind of manage those things? Uh, in terms of roles, um, in the beginning I was just focused on like user and uh, fundraising. Francis just focused on development. And user as well, but as you can see, like there, like we have all our core functions that we need to fulfill. But 
for whatever missing role that we don't have a person to do, then you know someone has to to just just do it like right yeah and and we just share it like. so for example like product management we do it like, right um, maybe I might do the user interviews and then I'll just pass it to Francis Francis you know what here's what they say like what do you think about it Francis proposed some features and I said okay that kind of matches with what the users want we try it then test again keep reiterating until until you yeah, it never stops yeah talk about all this uh, what are some opportunity costs that you incurred in like being an entrepreneur Opportunity cost, uh, well, I, I guess from a computing student point of view, right, uh, as everyone knows, um, I think computing students, they get paid quite a bit uh, right from right from like um, graduating from uh, undergraduate, right? Uh, and that's the most obvious opportunity cost. Like, you lose that nice, cushy uh, salary, right? Um, whereas in a startup, um, you know, you don't have the kind of luxury, lah. Uh, and but I, I think that even, even though we are losing like that financial stability but there's also still a lot, a lot to, to gain uh, right? um, from being in a startup because there's just like what, what we just said earlier we wear so many hats so we have to like pick up so many different skills learn really quickly yeah so I think all in all it's still okay <laughs> still okay yeah. um, is that why you think like many people are not like willing to be a startup especially like computing grads the financial instability. I, I, I think that um, for entrepreneurs, right, it really takes um, it really takes a special kind of person to want to go through this kind of hardship. Um, and, and I think that your motivation needs to be um, greater than than the opportunity cost, line, right? Um, I'm not saying that computing students are not motivated. I'm just saying that the upside of having a cushy job is really, really, really very, very good. Mm. I uh, think most people will agree with you. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, so yeah, I like to ask something in depth based on your answer. You, you, you said that the corporate jobs would be a very cushion, cushy life, okay? But what made you to drop out that thing and go behind? Like, is I don't say it's a bad field, but a field which is having a rough patch thing that you want to overcome to become successful. I think for me personally, because like I'm a, a builder, right? I want to build things, right? But um, um, when I build things, um, I want to build things that I have like a big say or the products that uh, I love, right? Uh, and, I, and I'm not sure whether or not if I go into like a, a MNC, that the things that I build would be something that I vibe with a lot, right? Whereas in the startup, uh, we get a lot of autonomy on um, what we like to build, um, uh, the features are proposed by us, right? We test the users, we see the users' reactions uh, directly, and then we iterate on that, right? So I think having that uh, ownership is quite uh, important and something that I, I enjoy. Uh. It's like a baby, right? You know, you're raising your own baby. Uh, I think that's the, the analogy I like to use. So uh, I know the answer for this. I mean, I know this answer, like, but I still want to ask your point of view on this question. Um. I think you said it's two years uh, for, of this journey for Lalia, right? So how do you feel this journey of in the startup? How do you feel it? Uh, yeah. How do we feel about the journey? Hmm. For me, I, I think I feel that the, the journey so far has been very enjoyable. Uh, ups and downs, for sure, right? But uh, all in all, it's a 
um, very different experience from um, some of the uh, um, other um, jobs that my, my friends have, uh, right? They, they hold the jobs um, which are more typical, right? For software engineering, uh, they might be building things. They're not sure why they're building because their product manager tells them to build, right? <laughs> yeah, so uh, I think that for, for me, I don't have those kind of complaints. Yeah, so I think I'm quite grateful um, to, to be in this position. Um, and I think the startup um, team or some team is quite supportive. Uh, and even though we're very small, you know, on the flip side, you can see as close-knitted, right? You know, a uh, small unit um, working together to fulfill the mm. same dream. La. And, I, I, and I quite cherish that a lot. Uh, well, I, I think that the, 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 the startup journey has been extremely challenging, right? I don't think there's anything in your life that can prepare you for this journey, to be honest. I, when, when, we first, when we first started uh, in the grip program, you know, they don't, they don't pay us, right? Uh, you, you're only paid based on uh, uh, contingent on whether or not you pass the investment panel. And so at that point of time, we just we, we graduated uh, and we, had, we, we, we didn't have income, right? And so like Francis would have to work um, as a researcher in the Kale Cube Lab. And I had to work for my professor, like, right? And these are things that we needed to do, uh, despite uh, grip taking up, you know, like a full times worth of time, you know. Um, and so uh, these are these are extremely difficult times, like, right? To to be able to juggle two things at once. Um, and even after you get the investment, you know, how much can you pay yourself? Do you do you want to pay yourself? Because uh, you've you painstakingly raised uh, this amount of money. Like, and obviously you want to grow your company using this money and then so you, you, you pay yourself uh, a token sum of money and, 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 and life is just hard, lah, right? Um, and even though like you're getting paid uh, like a token sum, you still have to work very, very long hours. You know, like I, I, feel, I feel that people don't tell uh, aspiring entrepreneurs enough um, when they come into this entrepreneurship journey uh, and they come in extremely starry-eyed, uh, not knowing what they're going to face. So I think there is a very, very harsh reality that most startups don't get funding. Imagine for those who don't get funding, right? It's even worse. Um, and and yeah, they, they should come in, set a timeline, have some conviction, and then um, uh, yeah, figure it out later. Yeah. One question I have is like, uh, uh, being in Asian culture, like sometimes parents would rather you have a cushy job because they tend to be more risk adverse in nature. So... What are you, uh, how do you deal with your parents' expectations and are they supportive of you on, on this journey? You want to hear the good one or the bad one? <laughs> <laughs> you can share both. Uh, uh, I mean, for me, my, my parents didn't even recognize that my entrepreneurship uh, job was an actual job. Yeah. So Do they still see you as playing around or something? Uh, no, no. Not, not after uh, Enterprise Singapore funded us. Yeah. So, you know, in, in the beginning, it's like my mom thought that it was because of COVID that I couldn't get a job. But I didn't understand why because it wasn't difficult for me to get a job then. Um, yeah. But she should have known that I, I, I really like entrepreneurship because I've been doing entrepreneurship even, even as a student. Uh, but yeah, but she didn't recognize that. Uh, I was a bit sad. Um, but, you know, I, I'm not just... Uh, I'm not, I'm not just accountable to my mom, I'm accountable to myself and my future, as well as my co-founders who have invested their time in me. So, just keep building and keep growing. Yeah. I think for me, 
um, my story is a lot more bright, I guess. <laughs> but I think my, my, my dad was, was quite um, um, chill about like um, my career path. I think he, he trusted that whatever I, I chose would be okay. Right? And, and in fact, he was also very encouraging um, for me to like start my own company one day. But I don't think that he expected me to like start a company like right off the bat, right? <laughs> yeah, so actually, I didn't, I just didn't uh, tell him that, that we were doing a lalia until very much later. Yeah, so I think they were just, my parents, they were just thinking that, oh, this guy is just going to NUS to do his research role. Yeah, but um, surprise, you know, like the startup <laughs> appeared. <laughs> yeah, then, then they were like, um, oh, you actually did it. And I, I'm like, yeah, of course. Why not? <laughs> yeah. So, um, like some advice that we give to a student who is entering a startup, like, just like you, right after graduation or even sometime after graduation, he's, he's going to put a startup and enter into domain. So what is something that you like to share with them or advise them? If I had any advice uh, to aspiring entrepreneurs is that they should really, really do their research even before starting the startup, right? Understand the industry, understand the, the prospect, uh, understand who you need in your team before starting out because... Um, like for us, right, you know, we, we, I feel like we kind of built it along the way. It's like driving a car, but without, <laughs> without, without, without wheels, you know, like then we try fitting the parts together as we move, you know? Um, yeah, but, but you, you shouldn't do it that way because, you know, you're compensating something and, um, yeah. And then th these things have to be resolved in the future for sure. Yeah. I, I think if anything, my, my advice would be to, um, don't build something that people don't want, right? And I think that it relates to to the to Wichin's point about doing your research. Uh, I think understanding markets, under, understanding customers, understanding pain points, I think all those are super important. Um, because you don't want to be investing six months, one year of your life into something that at the end of the day you're gonna throw away. Um, but but that being said, um, diving in hit first is also something that is possible. But you need to go in the mindset that um, um, things might change very quickly and you should be willing to um, throw away whatever you have been doing um, uh, when you realize that it's not working out. Yeah. You shouldn't feel like there's any like some cause fallacy or something. In this age of like social media, do you think social media is important for all businesses? I think so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think so. Especially, it, it, it really depends on the customer segment you're targeting, right? It's it's like re quite pointless to say that if you want to target like the sixty year old people, you go to social media. So like for us, but uh, what about like Facebook? You we would we would guess that like the demographics of Facebook like has mostly like the older generation. So it would mm. still be useful to have like maybe Facebook and stuff like that, in the case of like targeting sixty year olds. Poss possible, possible, but. But you know there there are also a lot of sixty year olds who are stubborn and prefer traditional media. So uh, I would say that you know this kind of social media marketing it was it was cheap when it first uh, when they first started it right. But now social media is so expensive. Uh, Facebook marketing is not that much cheaper than I mean I don't I don't think it's cheaper than than traditional media actually. And so you know like for us we have to allocate a budget and when we do that we have to make sure that it it makes sense for our customer segment. So I mean it. Like I said, so if the customer segment is suitable for social media, then it's worth investing. But you you kind of never know, right? So you, so you might be right that that targeting 
like going to Facebook is an option. So you should always break out your marketing budget to test different uh, marketing so, uh, avenues. Yeah. If possible, can you share your social media strategy or the way that you approach social media promotions? Yeah. So for for us, right, we we actually are a B two B business. So in in Japan, we we don't need social media. Uh, but for Thailand, we are planning to have a B2C business. So we would need uh, uh, social media. and uh, But we're working with this Thailand partner who is famous for running uh, Facebook campaigns because for Thailand, they like Facebook more. And so uh, that's how they are going to approach it. right? Just throw out a lot of uh, money on, on Facebook marketing and, and we reach... Mentioning on like B2B, I would think that LinkedIn is also an important part of marketing for B2B will it be like the case uh, yes so so we do have some uh, LinkedIn presence like you know if we go to InnoFest in Singapore we'll post some photos there uh, yeah so so we, we do have some activity uh, but it's, it's more for just uh, giving people updates on how a company has been growing yeah so you are mostly a people who kind of I, I believe from the interview approach the customers based on what they're actually in. Like if they are on traditional media, you try to go on traditional. Since Thailand is a major on Facebook, I guess you are going with the Facebook one, right? So uh, one factor that any student should take up in one criteria, something a student should keep it while doing his research about a startup. Like he has an idea and he, start, he starts to perform research towards building up that idea. One criteria or one factor that you should keep up in mind while doing this research, what is that criteria? With regards to marketing? No, in terms of uh, basic research. You were deciding that you want to target your Japan audience based on some research, right? Basically, one thing to keep in mind mm. when doing basic research about the segment that you are exactly. on. Yeah, don't don't just keep to secondary research. I feel like everybody just go to Google and then they just search, oh, okay, my market size $50 billion. <laughs> wow, how lucrative. Uh, don't do that. Instead, maybe you can go to LinkedIn. You can go and like do LinkedIn emails to, to people who are actually in the industry and then it can give you an actual perspective of uh, how the market is. And I don't think people... I, I, think, I think putting yourself out there is the, the best way to truly understand the market. Yeah. Yeah, so with that note, uh, we are extremely glad to have a team which is internally much bonded, much stronger and much focused. Not just on the way they research, but also the way they output their research. So we are glad to have you on board. Thank you yet again. And thank you listeners. See you on next episode. And this is Arutot Venture, Rosha. And this is Javier. Signing off from Broke No More of Radio Pulse. See you soon.